My name is Pastor Justin. I'm the senior pastor here at New Life. And uh, sad to say, we are concluding our sermon series, walking through the book of Nehemiah. I know, I know, I know. It has been, honestly, one of, uh, one of my favorite series walking through. I've heard from so many of you about how it has just spoken right to you, specifically in the, the season that you're in, in, the area of life that um, you've just been processing through with the Lord. And um, so if, if maybe this is your first time here and you're like, I didn't know we were going through, let alone concluding uh, the book of Nehemiah, um, let me give you like a 30-second recap. Real quick, this is the book of Nehemiah in 30 seconds. Nehemiah is a book about uh, a man who was blessed with a burden, uh, a burden from God for his people, the Israelites who were living in Jerusalem and they were being ransacked, they were in disgrace, they had lost their identity. And so Nehemiah gets this burden to restore that. He does that by doing something very practical. He goes to rebuild the wall, the wall that was like 140 years around Jerusalem had just been laying it in ruins. And so he goes in and in 52 days, they rebuild the wall. And then as soon as they rebuild the wall, the real rebuilding effort can now begin. And so he goes to rebuild their culture and their identity as God's people. They get back into the word of God. They confess their sins. They, they, they repent. They bring the worship back and they start to experience revival. And then they live happily ever after. <laughs> not necessarily. I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible's not a fairy tale. Uh, we like to tell our, our, ourselves fairy tales these days that uh, everyone lives happily ever after. But um, the book of Nehemiah is no different. It is not a, a fairy tale. It's more like a journal of a guy who has this experience of being an imperfect person, leading very imperfect people to follow a very perfect God. And today, as we kind of get into this last chapter, chapter 13, you may be wondering, like, what happened to 11 and 12? You can read 11 and 12. It's a lot of names and places and details that really hard to preach. Um, and so um, we're just going to go whoop, right to 13. You can read 11 and 12, and uh, I'll spare you a really boring sermon. Uh, and we'll get right into the heart and, and kind of the culmination of this. So, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, download the YouVersion app and you can kind of look down through it um, so that you can join us and kind of work down that with us together. Um, so in Nehemiah, what we, what we know about uh, as we kind of fast forward to the end, chapter 13, at some point, Nehemiah left Jerusalem. At some point, he, he left the scene altogether. And this is what we find in verse 6, Nehemiah 13. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah writing. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So, so this, is, this is packed with all kinds of stuff that he doesn't really talk about. Think about this. Nehemiah gets a burden from God asks the king, can, can I leave you? I know I'm your possibly poisoned wine taster, but can I go rebuild the wall? He says, yes, you go. Here you go. I'm going to send a cavalry with you. You can you have some free wood, all these different types of things. He rebuilds the wall, record time, 52 days, sets up a government, puts leaders in place, appoints priests and Levites and all these things. And he literally like builds up, builds up God's people and sparks a revival. And then he goes back to being a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Like, if I'm honest, 
I don't know many people who could do that. If I'm honest, I don't know if I could do that. He goes to Jerusalem, rebuilds God's people. He is seen as a leader of leaders in Jerusalem. Many people take the, this book of Nehemiah and use it as a leadership book for, for current day business and leadership goals, right? Under his influence, the city is thriving, the people are safe, the wall is rebuilt, and they are rebuilt. And then he goes back to Persia to honor his commitment. You may remember way back in, in Nehemiah chapter one, he made a commitment. Yeah, this is only gonna be for a certain time. And they agreed upon the time that he would go and rebuild the walls, but then he would come back to be a possibly poisoned wine taster for the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. This is, it's almost absurd. It takes a whole lot of spiritual maturity, a whole lot of humility to go from leading at that level to submitting at this level. Talk about a true test of character. Lord, may I be the type of leader that can, that can lead at a level, but after leading well, be able to submit well. What a, what a huge test of character. And we just see that in one verse, but it's so packed with all kinds of humility in the midst of, of this great man that, we, that we've been reading about. It goes on in verse 6. It says, Sometime later, I, Nehemiah, asked his permission, Artaxerxes, and came back to Jerusalem. So yet again, Nehemiah asks the king for permission. Hey, can I leave what I'm doing here and go back to Jerusalem kind of check things out, see how things are going. I've been off the scene for a while, and the king then yet again allows him to do that. Now, I've read a whole bunch of commentaries this week. It's not actually known how, how long he was off the scene in Jerusalem. It's, it's not like uh, there's a few different people, really pretty much like they think that it's probably anywhere between two and seven years that Nehemiah was off the scene. So when Nehemiah left, the Israelites were thriving. They were walking in revival. Like, things were good. Jerusalem was kicking it. And they heard the word of God. They, 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 they cried. They wept. They confessed their sins. They repented. They praised God. They brought in the worship team. They made changes in their lives. You might remember last week how it ended Essentially, like they all signed a contract. They were like, hey, we will follow all the rules, all the laws, all the ordinances that are outlined in the Word of God. We are turning over a new leaf. The old has passed, the new has come. Like we are doing things right. But now a few years have passed, two to seven years, and things start to creep in, as they always do. So Nehemiah shows up on the scene. And he is literally just jarred at the stark contrast between the condition that he left them in and now the condition that he finds them in. I think the Apostle Paul could probably relate to this. Um, he did this time and time and time again. He would go, he would enter into a city, he would, he would preach the gospel, he would plant a church, he would stay there for a little bit of time, he would, he would leave the church in, in trusted elders, he would appoint elders in place, and then he would leave. And as soon as he would leave, it was like trouble and compromise and drama would start to creep in. In fact, so many of the letters that we read of Paul's epistles, in some way, 
are his attempt to straighten out things, issues, problems, people that are just not acting right. And he's like, hey, you got to stop this, cut this out, don't do this, do this. There are probably many things that frustrated Nehemiah when he first came onto the scene. I'm sure he walked in and he was like, oh, you guys decided to repaint the wall that I built. Awesome. I wouldn't have chosen Periwinkle, but uh, nobody asked me. So beggars can't be choosers, I guess. There are probably some things that annoyed him, right? Things get changed. Two to seven years, you're gone. You build everything. You did all, like, things are different, right? There are a few things that annoy him, but there are, there are like three or four things that really anger him. Some of the things are just preferences. These things, man, he gets very angry about. We're going to read that in, in this chapter. And as we look at them today, this is what I want you to do. I know that these people, Nehemiah, all of this stuff happened like almost 2,500 years ago. What you will begin to notice is that you aren't that different. In fact, the things that distract you, the things that tempt you, are many ways the same things that distract and tempt the Israelites almost 2,500 years ago. So the first thing that angered Nehemiah, we find it in verse 4. Eliashib, the, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Pause. Do you remember that name? Tobiah? Yeah, yeah. From earlier chapters, anybody? Like, you've been, like, we, I've told you, I get, you, you got to remember these two names, Sanballat and Tobiah, and it's interesting we find his name. The last chapter, we haven't heard anything about this dude. He's been, you know, as far as I was concerned, off the scene. Everything had been rebuilt, but um, not so much. Sanballat and Tobiah, maybe you didn't remember this, were the haters. They were the guys who were actively trying to stop the progress of the wall. They're actively saying, hey, come down off the wall. Come meet us at the, at the city of, oh, no. Remember that? Like, oh, no. If, if your enemy ever tells you, let's go meet up at a city called, oh, no, you should say no, no to the, oh, no, right? And so, so these are the guys who were literally trying to get Nehemiah to come off the wall, stop working, stop rebuilding. They were actually, in many ways, looks like they were actually trying to ambush him and possibly kill him. So, he's closely associated with Tobiah, who is the hype man, the toady of Sanballat. Yeah, yeah. Um, what amazes me is that this guy, Tobiah, is still around. He hadn't left. In fact, when Nehemiah left town to go back to Persia, it looks like Tobiah moved in, quite literally moved in. Verse 5, and he, Eliashib the priest, had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites and musicians and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. Tobiah yeah, yeah, the hater, was given an entire room in the temple of God to store a bunch of his crap in. I said it. 
If you think I'm getting a little under, like unnerved about this, just wait and see what Nehemiah does later on in this, right? He has given this guy, this hater, this man who was trying to like completely disrail, derail all of, all of this whole process. Nehemiah goes off the scene. Guess who? Guess who gets an open storage unit in the temple of God? Tobiah. Not only that, this room was originally intended to store, guess what? The tithes and offerings. And it is now being used as a storage unit for this Yahoo. They had literally rented out space to the enemy in the house of God. Can I say this to you in your notes today is this, never rent out space to the enemy. And I mean this in love. Some of you have rented out so much space to the enemy in your mind, you should be charging him rent. He's the one to kind of lead you into your belief system that kind of instructs your identity, tells you who you are. Like you've rented out so much space to him up here that you probably should be charging him rent. And some of you like would like to, to be able to give of your time and your talents and your treasures, but you don't even have a spare room to be able to do that even if you wanted to. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse eight, I was greatly displeased. Means he was ticked off. Just wait. And he threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Like personally, this dude, Nehemiah, I love this guy, man. He just comes into town. And he's just like, what is going on around here? It's like Jesus flipping tables, right? He just starts flipping tables. He's like, this is ridiculous. I am greatly displeased. <laughs> I bet he was more than greatly displeased. I'm just going to say this. This is Tobiah. Yeah, yeah. This is the guy who was like, yeah, even a fox could knock this well over. Yeah, yeah. This is the guy who was trying to kill him. And this guy's got a spare room in the temple, in the house of God. You have got to be kidding me. So he single-handedly goes in, rents a dumpster, throws all of Tobiah's stuff out of the room, lights the dumpster on fire, I'm sure. <laughs> and then he fills it back up with what it should have been filled with. In fact, it says this, verse 9, I love this. I gave orders to purify the room. It's almost like he fumigated the place. I didn't want this place to smell like Tobiah. He smells, he stinks. I don't want, I want, I want every part of him gone. Not only his stuff, but his stench. I don't want to walk into the temple of God and smell Tobiah. Gets rid of that. And then he continues in verse nine. And then I put back into them the, the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I want you to imagine you as Tobiah coming home from work, normal day. You don't know what's going on. You had a hard day's work. You come home, find all your stuff in a dumpster fire, and your storage unit is chock full of grain, literally chock full of grain. All your stuff, your, your, your stuff that you, know, you, you just had to have this storage unit for is now on fire, and the, the place that you held all of your good household things were, is, is actually like full of grain, tithes. So not only were they renting space to the enemy, but what's even more sad is that space that they had rented to him was where the tithes and the offerings were supposed to be stored. Which means that the people had stopped doing two things. One, they'd stopped tithing. 
Verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, the priests, had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Apparently, it doesn't say this, and we can pretty much assume since there was an open storage unit with nothing in it but household goods from the enemy, that the people had just stopped giving. If they had been giving, then the room that was rented out to them wouldn't have been empty and ready for rent. It would have been full of the tithes and the offerings of God's people. And so because of their lack of obedience and giving, the people that were called to lead, the people that were called to serve were not provided for and had to go back to work in their own fields to support themselves. So what does Nehemiah do? Again, love this guy. Verse 11. I rebuked the officials and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Why is the house of God neglected? The people seemed to be taking care of their, their own houses. Everything was good there, but they were neglecting God's house. And essentially what had happened is that like they knew that God expected them to give their first and their best, but the Israelites decided that they were going to give their last and their leftovers. And what we know, what I know to be true, is that when God gets our leftovers, there's not much left over. At all, really. And then he says, then I called them together and I stationed them at their post. So he calls all the people that had left and gone back to work, he says, come back here, stationed up at their post. And then you can read down a little bit, a few last verses. It says, he reorganizes the collection, the accounting, the distribution of the tithes and the offering. He's like, oh, I don't know what you guys have been doing. You guys aren't giving. You guys aren't managing the, the house. You aren't even managing the tithes that you are get, getting. You're not giving it to the people that are supposed to be getting. Like, this is, a, this is a hot mess. And so he just starts flipping tables putting people back in place and reorganizing things so that it's done the way it should be. And not only had they stopped tithing, but the second thing that they'd stopped doing is that they stopped honoring the Sabbath. Verse 15. In those days, I, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. The Israelites had stopped taking a day off. They were, they were working, they were um, gathering, they were buying, and they were selling on, on the Sabbath day. And for, for many reasons, but for one specific reason, the Sabbath was designed to remind them who their provider was. The Israelites were told, you, you, you work six days and then you, you rest on the seventh from all work. Essentially, it's like, hey, um, you need to trust that on your day off that the world will keep spinning and that I'm still your provider, even though you're not actively working. And I think many times we think like, well, if I, if I made more than I would give. The problem is, is that as we just look at the Israelites here in Jerusalem, it wasn't true for them. And usually it's not true in my experience. Like if you're not faithful with the little that you do have, you won't be faithful with the lot that you might receive. And the interesting correlation 
that cannot be overlooked here as we look at this, this case study is this, that they were, they were working more than ever and giving less than ever. So they were giving, they were, they were honoring the Sabbath, they were working six days, taking a day off and giving and all of these, everything was working great. Now they're working seven days a week and they're giving less than ever. And they're renting out a room to Tobiah, the Ammonite, to put his, his junk in because it's actually empty. It doesn't have what it should have in it. And the reality is this, and I said this in your notes, that your heart will always pursue what you value as treasure. Your heart will always pursue what you value as treasure. And when we chase after the treasures of the world, we will begin to devalue the treasures of the kingdom. Because like Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. And we end up working really hard to build a castle for ourselves rather than to build the kingdom of God. It's really sad, two to seven years, how things had just kind of regressed. So what did Nehemiah do? I love this. He orders all the gates to be closed during the Sabbath. He's like, no, no, more, no more people coming in here with their figs. Nobody people coming in here with their raisins. No, keep your raisins outside, right? He, he, keeps, he shuts all the gates. He's like, nobody's coming in here. We're not buying and selling on Sabbath. And in fact, even though you want to, I'm actually going to be shutting the gates so that it can't happen. The merchants couldn't get into the city so that they could buy and sell. And some of them tried to sleep outside like it was some sort of like a hot Black Friday sale. They're just like, oh, that's okay, man. It's fine. I'm just going to hang out here until the gates open. Then I'm going to come in there and sell all my wares. He's like, get out of here. Get out of here. Verse 21, let me show you what he says. Then I warned them, the guys sleeping in the tent, tent, little tent village outside of the city. Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. There are two different types of laying on of hands in the Bible. <laughs> this is the one you don't want to receive. Just saying, it's not a blessing, okay? okay? It, may, it may leave you with bruises, not an anointing, okay? He's like, you do this again? I'm coming out here with my fisticuffs. I'm bringing it. I, I will beat you up personally. Like, that's pretty much what he's saying. Almost like he's like so serious about this. He's like, I am taking a day off. And if you get in the way of that, I will literally beat you up. <laughs> what would it look like if we took the Sabbath that seriously? I'll lay, I'll lay hands on you. <laughs> what, what else did, did, did Nehemiah get angry about? Last one, verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. What does that mean? I mean, obviously they were like intermarrying, but like, what does that mean? What does that mean? We kind of like extrapolate that into our own lives. Like, Essentially, the world had so infiltrated the church that the Israelites, the people of God, didn't even seem to carry, care so much about marrying someone in the same faith. It was so much of a little thing to them that they're like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Not only that, they weren't even raising their children in the Lord. 
They weren't teaching them, their children, um, Hebrew, which is the, the, the language of Judah, so that they wouldn't even be able to read their own Bible. That, that, that's not just like, a, oh, it's a language barrier thing. No, that means that like this next generation would not be able to even read the Bible. That's, that's the deal. And this was true then, and it's even more true today, that we are always one generation away from apostasy. He took this so seriously. If, if you want to change the world, folks, stop thinking that it's going to come through the White House and, and start focusing on your house. This is what is going on in the heart of Nehemiah. He is looking around and he's seeing what's going on and he's taking so very seriously the responsibility of that current generation of believers to not just leave the next generation with a financial inheritance, but to leave them with a spiritual legacy. Please, leave your kids some money. That's awesome, right? That's great. Leave them with some financial inheritance. But please make sure, this is what Nehemiah would say, make sure that you leave them with a spiritual legacy. Let's see what Nehemiah did about this one. Verse 25. I rebuked them. Okay, did that before. He called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I mean, Nehemiah. Come on, dude. Like, I did. I beat some of them and I pulled out some of their hair too. Yeah. Like, it's a bit much. So it's a lot, a bit much, right? But here's what it does. It communicates. I'm not going to like weigh in. Should he pull out their hair this little bit? I, I don't know. It's Old Testament. Come on. But, but what this communicates is just how serious he is about this. Rent out space to the enemy. That makes him angry. Lack of obedience in your giving and your resting. Yeah, that'll tick him off. But you start messing with kids. You start neglecting the next generation. I'll start ripping out your hair. Many people say it wasn't just this hair. It was their beards, which hurts a whole lot more. Let me remind you why this is so serious to him. And I'm going to hearken you back, all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. This is his rally cry. This is his moment in the sun to remind every single person why they're building the wall, why they started this in the first place. He says this, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles and I said to the officials and all the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Stand up and fight. Nehemiah knew that a nation is only as strong as her homes. And we forget that even today. We think the nation needs to fix everything. No, 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 no. A nation is only as strong as her homes. May this book, 
be a reminder to every single one of us to remain focused on the things that matter, to stop fighting battles that aren't yours to fight, to stop allowing haters to distract you, and to fight to fight for your families, to fight for your sons, to fight for your daughters, to fight for your wives and your homes. The second, the second law of thermodynamics is something that we call entropy. Um, it's a big word. It essentially means that the universe, as time passes, increases in disorder and randomness not order and structure. Um, which is why as you get older, you need new parts. <laughs> you need a hip. Anyone got a knee? I need a shoulder. Um, you don't get younger and more vibrant as you, get, <laughs> as you get older. Things just wear down. That is entropy. It's, it's just how things happen in, in the universe. It's the, the second law of thermodynamics. And, um, I was thinking about spiritual entropy. It comes into effect unless you actively tend to it. Um, General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, and I just, I put it in your notes today. I just, I think it's so important. He said, is it the nature of a fire to go out? You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. So how do you tend to spiritual fire in your own life? How, if, if everything leads toward entropy, randomness, breakdown, disintegration, how do you keep a vibrant spiritual life? I think he said it. I mean, the first thing he says is keep the fire stirred. Keep the fire stirred. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul said something kind of similar to, to that, to his spiritual son Timothy. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, he says, for this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I'm not a magician, although I wish I was. Um, what we know to be true is that um, we are responsible to stir ourselves up in the Lord, right? Like we are responsible to keep ourselves stirred because the natural order of things will just lead toward entropy, settling. Settling is what happens when we fail to stir ourselves up. Um, and so... The Israelites, we'll talk about Nehemiah's time, right? The Israelites experience like a spark of revival as Nehemiah, you know, stirs them up. Ezra starts reading the word and it starts stirring them up. And they start bringing out the musicians and they start like getting stirred up. They get stirred up in the Lord and all these great things are happening. They're experiencing revival. What happens? Nehemiah leaves two to seven years later, and they've done nothing to maintain anything or to stir themselves up because the nature of a fire is to go out. Unless you keep the fire stirred. 
So the question for us, for them, is this, what do you do when people aren't stirring your fire for you? Do you stir the fire yourself? Because the reality is, is your spouse can't stir your fire for you. I can't do it for you. Now, we can, we can give you sparks. We can throw sparks in your way. But the reality is, is if you want to keep that spiritual fire going on the inside of you, then you're responsible to stir it yourself. And if you're not, you should expect this. Don't be like surprised. Be like, I just don't even know. I don't know. I don't understand why I feel like God isn't there. I'm just not I'm spiritually vibrant. Because you're, you're not doing anything to necessarily stir yourself up. And, and like I said earlier, we aren't that different from the Israelites. We're tempted and distracted by the same things. We rent out space to the enemy in our life. We stop, we stop being obedient in resting, in, in tithing. We, we start running after more and more and more, thinking that that's the thing that we need to achieve, more money, more things. And we get really concerned with things like ownership when God is much more concerned about things like stewardship. He's actually much more concerned with what I'm doing with what I currently have rather than, well, what I might do with what I might have down the road. He's like, what are you doing with what I've currently given you? And not only that, we get lazy. We get lazy in our, in our fight for our purity if we're single, in our marriages, if we're married, in our, with our parenting, with our kids, with our fighting for our families. Like we get, we get lazy in our fight. And the second way that General William Booth says, he says, keep it stirred, keep your fire stirred. And then he says, keep your fire fed. Keep it fed. If, if your fire is smoldering, you may just need to put more kindling on it. What does that even mean? Bear with me. I mean this when I say this. If you are not serving or, or using your gifting, if you're not putting yourself into situations or circumstances for God to use you, then you are giving the opportunity for the Holy Spirit no, no draw to ignite, to, to stir up on the inside of you. What are you intentionally putting in your path, in your life, placing in your, in your life to put a draw on the Holy Spirit that dwells within you? The, the very next verse after verse 6 about the whole fanning your flame, in, in, you know, fanning the flame of, of the gift of God is another verse. And we love to quote both of these verses. Let me read it for you in verse 7. For, for the Spirit of God does not give, make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Your version might say that the Spirit of God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. What's really interesting to me is verse 6 and verse 7 get quoted a whole heck of a lot, but they're never quoted together. They're just like, yeah, 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 we love fan into flame. Yeah, the gift of God is placed on you. Yeah, and we love that the, that the Spirit of God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. But we almost act like they're divorced from each other, like they just found them in different books or different chapters. They're literally right next to each other. Two solid, quotable verses. And yet we act like they're not the same thought. Um, the Lord's been teaching me a lot about this as I've been praying through the scripture this week. Have you ever been talking to someone and, uh, and, and you're in a situation and you like sense that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just kind of starts, like there's a draw that comes out of you. Um, let me put this in the natural, if this is kind of a hard thing for you to, to grasp. 
Um, this happens all the time in the natural. If you are, let's say you're an auto mechanic, and you're just like hanging out with some friends, and all of a sudden, like they start talking about like, hey, there's the, the issue with their car, and this is what it's doing, you know, it's like, wah, 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 and they're making noises and all these different things, and it's shut off, and it won't do this, and it won't do that, all the kinds of kind of things. Like you, as an auto mechanic, you can't help yourself but to start figuring it out. It would, in fact, it would be weird if you didn't. If you just sat there and you're like, eh, who cares? I don't know, right? No, of course you do. Like, that is your gifting. It's your talent. You've been trained in it. You're an auto mechanic by trade. If somebody starts talking about it and you love them and they're your friend, all of a sudden it's going to just come pulling out of you. You're like, oh, it's the alternator. What? It's the alternator. What? What's that? Just bring it over to my house, I'll fix it. You know what I mean? Like, you get to this place. It happens all the time in the natural. And that same thing happens to us in the spiritual. So the same thing. You'll be talking to a friend. You'll be, you'll be sitting across at like Panera Brad or you're, you're drawn to someone randomly or you're in a situation or a conversation and all of a sudden you find yourself, can I pray for you? Or you find yourself like with wisdom coming out that you know you're not smart enough to possess. <laughs> you say, <laughs> and they're like, that was so deep. And you're like, oh yeah, it's because I'm deep. No, you're not. No, you're not. You know that's not you. You know that the Holy Spirit's like putting a draw on out, coming out of you and, and it makes you look good, but you know in your heart of hearts, it ain't you. You're not that smart. Here's my point in verse seven, when he's talking about like that the Spirit of God is not giving you a spirit of fear or intimidation or timidity, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Either people and circumstances and, and situations in life will draw out of you faith power, love, a sound mind, or people and circumstances and situations will draw out of you fear and intimidation and timidity and cause you to settle. One, people and circumstances will put a draw on the Holy Spirit coming out and you, all of a sudden you're saying things that you're like, this is so good and sparkly and amazing. I don't even know. And you're like, I know, it's so great. I'm so sparkly. And, and, and God's like, you know that's not you, right? And you're like, yeah, 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 but let's just, just let them believe it. Just let them believe it that, it, that, it's, that it's me. Just for a little bit, God, if that'd be great. And then other times, all of a sudden you're in situations and places and all of a sudden that, that spirit of fear, timidity comes out of you and, all, and you, just, you just pull back. And it causes you to settle. The question in verse seven is this, are you stirring it up or are you settling down? Are you stirring up your faith or are you settling because of fear and intimidation? Because intimidation will tell you, well, like, business is slow, um, I'm probably going to lose my job. Faith says, my God supplies all of my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Intimidation will tell you things like, well, you know, like the, the sky's falling and, and faith says the sky's the limit. I serve a God who is, is the God of impossibles. He is the way maker. He makes ways where there is no way. Intimidation will get to the place where we're like, you know, like, I, I don't know. I've just, I've done too much. And I, I think I've, it's, it is what it is. It's always going to be the same. And, and faith says your best days are ahead of you. Your past does not dictate your future. God has given you new things. Behold, the old has passed, the new has come. You are not who you used to be. But you've got to make that decision. 
Are you going to be led by fear and intimidation and allow you to just settle? Or are you going to begin to stir up and put yourself in situations, in places, in circumstances? Maybe you're signing up for a life group. Maybe you're leading a lot. I don't even know what that looks like for you. But you're putting it in a place where you're putting a log on the fire so that it put a draws on it. You put a log on a hot flame, all of a sudden that log catches fire and all, and all of a sudden you're not just trying to struggle and thinking, oh man, just a little bit, just if I could just have a little bit. No, you put a log on this, all of a sudden it just keeps churning. It just keeps churning because you not only have stirred the fire, you've fed it. You put something on there that puts a draw on the Holy Spirit to work in and through you. God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but a power love and a sound mind. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? i leave you with my last point. And it's the last point of General William Booth. Thirdly, the way to keep a fire from going out is to keep the ashes removed. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says, guard the, whole, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Folks, you need to guard what God has given you. Many times, if your fire is smoldering or going out, it is because you are unwilling to remove the ash in your life. There are things that have like, you know, just kind of started accumulating and you just think, well, I just kind of put more fire on this. I know, but you kind of have to remove some of this stuff in your life. You're going to have to start saying no to some of these things. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to put a, a guard on this. You're going to have to start carrying and, guard, and putting a guard around this area of your life. Ah, no, no, no. If I just keep putting more fire on this, I'm just going to go to the next conference. I'm going to just go to the, the next worship night. I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm going to just keep doing that. And God's like, that's great. And I want you to worship. And I want you to stir yourself up. And I want you to put more logs in the fire. But don't forget that you got to keep taking out the ash in your life. And I with church people, right? We just keep moving forward in God. We keep moving forward in God and we're neglecting the things that God is whispering to us and saying like, hey, this is great and I'm so happy with what I'm able to do in your life, but it's being short-circuited. In fact, this fire is not as hot or as bright as it could be because you're unwilling to scoop out the ash. Think about this. If, if someone just decided to move into your house without your permission. They call them squatters. Um, they just started eating your food, drinking your OJ, um, sleeping in your bed. What would you do? Would you say, hey, um, Joe, what was your name? Joe, Joe? Okay, Joe, um, listen, <laughs> dude. I'd like for us to have a little bit of an arrangement here, like an understanding. You're taking up much more than half of my bed. It's Joe, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot. I just need half. You know, if you could just give me half, that'd be good. Um, and here's the thing. If you could stop eating all of my Swiss cake rolls, that'd be great. Would you do that? No, 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 no. You would kick them out. You get rid of their ash, right? I didn't say it. Come on. 
You would say to them, you would say to them, my wife's like, Justin, you can't, I didn't say it. You all thought it. You would say, you don't belong here. Get out of my house. Get out of here. Those are my Swiss cake rolls. Get out of my bed, you squatter. No, Tobiah, I'm not renting this room to you. Get out of here. No, you kick them out and you change the locks. Some of you, some of you have given the enemy a key to your home and you keep wondering why he keeps getting in. You got to change the locks, folks. You got to guard what God has entrusted to you. And yeah, you keep stirring it up. Yeah, you put more logs on the fire to burn brighter for him, but you have got to remove the ash in your life that builds up over time. Stop renting out space to the enemy. Stop pursuing the things of this world as if they were true treasures and fight. Fight for your marriage, fight for your sons and daughters, fight for your families. Because passivity is the enemy of change. Like Nehemiah, maybe his mode was a little unorthodox, but what he did do was he turned his anger into action and he did something about it. What has God told you to kick out that you're just working around? We're going to sing this last song together and I, was, I wrote it down as I was, we are singing that last song. It's called He's Already Won. It's our new song for the month. Man, I love that song. I think you guys do too. And there's a part, there's a part in it, and they do it a little sing-songy. I don't even know if this is like on purpose, but I love it. They, it goes like this. I know how the story ends. But it's almost like they sing it like, I know how the story ends. <laughs> I'm singing it totally off, but it's like, it's almost like we're singing it to the devil. Like, I know how the story ends. You get kicked out. I'm done. I'm not renting room to you anymore. I'm fighting. I'm keeping stirred and fed, and I'm removing the ash out of my life. Like, I know how the story ends. I'm fighting a battle he's already won. Amen? Lord, have your way in us. God, I pray that we would walk in spirit and truth. Lord, as we worship you, God, I pray that you would just be bringing those areas of our life. Lord, those those areas where we're just kind of like getting lazy and fighting for our families and for our marriages and for our kids and Maybe we're, we're getting lazy and like honoring the Sabbath and, and, and just trusting you as our provider and, and giving. We're, we're, we're not trusting you in our giving anymore, Lord, because we feel like we just got to keep holding on to all of these things, Lord. Those areas of our life where we're renting room out to the enemy of our minds, it's time for you to go. Lord, you, you dictate who we are. You speak identity over us. You correct our wrong thinking. You, you guide us and line our path. You have your way in us.